As always, I'm blessed to share with you from God's Word. Because it doesn't matter what you think or feel. It doesn't matter what I think or feel. What matters is what the Word of God says. Amen? Amen. And so, you know, I'm in school. I love learning. I love reading. And people, you know, want to discuss theological things. I'm always happy to do that. But my question is always... Do you have a high view of Scripture? In other words, is the ultimate authority, is the ultimate source of truth the Bible? Because if it's not, I mean, we can have a conversation, but I don't really care. I don't really care what you think. You shouldn't really care what I think, unless it has to do, unless it's founded in the Word of God. And so this past week, I I finished a course. uh, I just uh, uh, put my final assignment in last week. And uh, the course was on the resurrection, and it wasn't just on the, you know, evidence for, uh, you know, the historicity of the, of the resurrection, you know, defending that it happened as an actual event. There was, that was part of the course, but it also focused very much on the resurrection and, and the hope we have in everyday life, that what the resurrection means to us as Christians today. Because I, I, see we tend, I think we tend to see sort of the world in a, in a divided way. We, we see, you know, the, the world and, and this system as, as bad and as the material world is evil and something to be avoided. And then someday we're going to get to heaven and heaven was good, is good. So it's like the world is bad, heaven's good, and we're just kind of hanging out here and trying to do a few good things until we get there. And that's not the Christian hope. The Christian hope is much bigger than that. And so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, which is, you know, where Paul's centrality, his focus, his, the foundation of all of our faith, everything is built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at that. I, one of the books I was reading was by N.T. Wright. He's a theologian. He was the Bishop of Durham in the Anglican Church. And in his book, it's called Surprised by Hope. And he writes this. The transition from the present world to the new one would be a matter not just of the destruction of the present space-time universe, but of its radical healing. So he says the New Testament writers, particularly Paul, look forward to this time and saw Jesus' resurrection as the beginning or the first fruits of this new kingdom. So when we use the word eschatology, which is, which is about things, about the time, the future, we don't just mean the second coming, but rather we mean the entire sense of God's future for the world and the belief that that future has already begun to come forward and meet us in the present. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ means God is, in effect, bringing heaven to earth. That he is beginning now the redemption, the restoration of all the world. The belief that the future has already begun to come forward to meet us in the present. So the resurrection of Jesus was God's beginning of his redeeming, of his recreating. It is there where death and sin were overcome. It's there where our hope lies, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I think the world and even in the church, there tends to be two very non-Christian views about death. And one is that When you die, everybody goes to heaven where there's angels playing harps and all of our dead relatives are there. Just that's sort of that happens to everybody. That's just kind of how it is. And it's just this place over there and there's no, you know, physicality to it. It's just this, you know, almost like this abstract concept. 
Or that death is the enemy. That, you know, death is what we're all kind of hurling towards, but, you know, you can't avoid it, and it's like death and taxes, right? There's nothing you can do. And neither one of those views are Christian. They're both wrong views. So Wright says, if the resurrection is an event that actually occurred in time and space, as well as in the material reality of Jesus' body, its implications for other events must follow. This resurrection was a physical one. And our hope is not just for some spiritual and immaterial heaven, but for a new heaven and a new earth where God makes all things right. And so that means we are called as a church, as a result of our changed identity through Christ, to not just look forward to heaven, but to begin living out the kingdom of God right now. Wright says, the resurrection is not only too essential to the Christian faith, it is essential to our Christian hope. It is central to our view of the last things. And so often we can seemingly want to just give up trying to affect change in the world. We can grow weary or cynical. It's being like, well, I'm going to sort of do the best I can, but I mean, you know, it's a fallen world. And sometimes we say, well, it's a fallen world. Like there's nothing we can do. We just kind of have to tolerate it and bear it until that day comes. But in fact, what Jesus calls us to do is to live out as kingdom citizens here and now to affect the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the Greeks, you know, Plato thought the idea that the, that the, the material world it was, was evil and, and was bad. The Gnostics taught this, that the, the, everything that's physical is bad. Buddha said it was just, uh, it's just an illusion, it's not reality. And so the real reality is the spiritual. But that's not the Christian view. The Christian view is that God created it all, sin distorted it all, and God is redeeming it all. So yes, there's a heaven, but ultimately there's a new heaven and a new earth where we know that it's going to be different in some sense. Paul says right now we have perishable bodies, then it'll be imperishable, it'll be glorified. It'll be different. So in other words, good news for some of us, there's going to be an upgrade. You know what I mean? Because if I get there and he's like, and I'm like, this, this is what, this is what I get? Like, no. I mean, Willie looks good now. He doesn't need an upgrade. Some of us, I need an upgrade. I want an upgrade body. I want it to be different. But there's a physicality to it. Jesus' resurrection was a physical resurrection. And that's why, as evidence, he says, you know, touch, see. So there will be a reality to our, it'll be a different world. It'll be a perfect world. It'll be a world without sin, a world we can't fathom. But it is a world, and that world has begun here and now. So we can long for heaven, we can long to be with Jesus, but we can begin living now as citizens of heaven here on earth. And so I think that seeing the resurrection in terms of the beginning of that kingdom that is right now and not yet, that has come in full and will come in part, I think that helps us with practical Christian living. And so what we're going to talk about is really just incarnational living. It is living in such a way that I recognize the Christ in me and the Christ working through me. And so the church isn't a place to attend. It isn't an event. It's a community to belong to. It's God's people doing God's work in God's whole world. And so last week we read Micah 6.8. He has told you, mortal, what is good. He's, he's let you know, human, what to aspire to. 
And what does the Lord require? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Live in such a way that you affect the world and the world systems and the people around you. Live in such a way where you reflect kindness and do it in a way with humility, walking with God, the God who created it all, who sustains it all, and who's redeeming it all. As Paul says in Philippians 1, verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Paul's going, look, if I'm to stay here on earth, it's going to be work. It's not necessarily what I would choose. Paul's like, I know that future. I know that life with Jesus. I long for that. Paul's going, if I'm going to stick around, it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. Life is not for the faint of heart. And Paul said, yet which, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the, do, the two. For my desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. But to the, remain in the flesh, that's necessary for your account. Paul's saying, convinced of this, I know I will remain. And I will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. I love that. I'm going to stay hanging out with you guys for your progress and your joy in the faith that in me you will have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Paul's going, look, I'd rather not be here. I mean, some of us think like that, right? Like, you know, I mean, my father used to joke, and he'd have a bad day, and, you know, he'd be like, I'm coming, I'm coming, you know, that's it, Lord, you know, like, just take me now. Like, we long, like, like just get me out of this place. And God's going, yeah, it's, it's not just about you, see? Your life impacts others your testimony is for others in the way you live church that impacts the world for the glory of God and so like Paul we should long to just remain in those situations because if all the lights removed what are you left with but if that little glimmer of light remains John 18 36 Jesus said this my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is from another place. Now Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, and that's very familiar to us. My kingdom is not of this world. That's, the, that's that separation we see. There's, there's the spiritual and the physical. But, but look what Jesus says. It's not of this world, but now notices how further he does not say his kingdom is in another place. He says his kingdom is from another place. And that's important because Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not from here, but it's been brought here. That's the title of the message this morning. His kingdom has come to this world because Jesus has brought and through us is bringing this kingdom here on earth, what we know now in part, we will come to know in full. And so his kingdom has come to this world. And so we're going to talk about incarnational living and the Christian hope this morning. So take a moment, say hi to somebody near you, and then we'll pray and continue. Oh, hey.
got quiet all of a sudden. <laughs> Where's the uh, first tennis match mentioned in the Bible? Anybody know? This is a joke for Kenan. Where Pharaoh served in, in uh, where Joseph served in Pharaoh's court. What's that? Is that all right? That was a Gary White dad joke, sorry. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for the truth of your word, for the testimony of your spirit, for the presence of your son, God. And we're here as your people to be ministered to. God, change us. Search our hearts. Bring to our attention those things that we need to release and give to you, God, so you can do new things in us and through us. Have your way. Come in power. We want to leave here changed. We want to leave here effective. We want to live lives that bring you glory and honor. We want people to come to know the truth of Jesus Christ. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I would ask you to read through all of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But this morning I want to, I want to highlight and point out some things. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul begins and he says this. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you have taken your stand. Paul's going, let's, let's recap, let's pause, let's kind of, let's remember first things, let's set the foundation again. Paul's going, this is the gospel, everything else is based on this. This is, he says in verse 2, by this gospel you are saved if you, home, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. Paul's going, this is it, that you can't take this out. You know, I mentioned a few weeks ago that the, you know, statistics say, oh, the church is in decline, religion's in decline. That's because it's religion not based on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. That's because it's, it's, you know, pseudo-philosophy. It's not, it's not the scriptures. Paul's going, look, if you take this out, there's nothing left. And this, this kingdom, God's going to keep building it. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. Your sin and my sin's not bigger than it. We recognize the power of the resurrection. It's like, yeah, Jesus, uh, God can raise Jesus from the dead, but my sin, my past, I don't know, that may, might be tough. No, that power is our victory. That power is what gives us new life. And so Paul says, by this gospel you're saved. This is the truth. This is the news that we're talking about. Verse three, for what I have received, I passed on to you as a first of importance, as of critical belief, as the foundation. Everything else is built on this. Paul says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters who were together. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me. Paul's going, look, this is the gospel. This Jesus, this Messiah that the scriptures foretold, he came and he lived and he taught and then he was crucified, but he's alive right now. And we saw him. And that changes everything. And so in verse 12, Paul says this, because there are some people back then and there are some people now. I mean, in, in, the, in the class I took, it's amazing, you know, sometimes the, the, uh, the, the, the suggestions or the, the alternative theories people come up with are more fantastic than the original. So one is, well, it was a mass hallucination. Now, people don't all hallucinate the same thing over multiple periods, but that's one, that's one option. 
The other is, well, Jesus wasn't really killed on the cross. He was just, you know, he was just really in rough shape because that would spark a religion. Can you imagine like this beat up Jesus and then let's follow this guy. I mean, just the, the, the theories that people go through, but it's all to, to deny the truth of the resurrection. And Paul's like, look, he's like, let, let me just, and I love that this is in scripture because, you know, people try to, to come up with all kind of, you know, well, Jesus was a good teacher. Well, I mean, he said some good things. I mean, you, you know, there's all kinds of different views and different religions and it's just Jesus was one teacher and then Buddha was one teacher and then everybody and but the resurrection makes clear that that's different because Jesus was risen from the dead. Paul's going, that's what differentiates from the whole thing. In space and time, in physical reality, he was dead and then he was alive. That's never happened before. That's only because God did that. And in that, God affirms Jesus' identity. He gives him authority. God wouldn't raise a heretic. And so that's what makes him different. So he's not a good teacher he didn't say some things that we can write on bumper stickers. He didn't come so we could have a little bit of a better life. And Paul's going to say that in much stronger language than I, than I will. Verse 12. He says, if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead. In other words, if that's the message. And, I, and we could say this today to other churches. Because now everybody can say they're a church. Anybody can say they're a pastor. Anybody can say they're a Christian. It doesn't have to mean anything. It means, you know, what does it mean? It means that I believe the resurrection of Jesus. It means that, and we're having, you know, next week we're having a baptism. A baptism, baby dedication. We're going uh, to announce some partners. And it's not too late if you haven't been baptized. Because baptism is this, right? Baptism is identifying in Jesus' death. In our death to self, our death to the past life. But it is identification. It is also participation in the resurrected life. And coming up out of the water with a new life that he bought for us on that cross. Not like a slightly better old life, but an entirely new life because the resurrection changes everything. And so Paul's saying, if, if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection? He's like, what is it you guys are trying to teach? If there's no, no resurrection, then Christ hasn't been raised. And then he, and he fleshes this out because this is how it works. If Christ hasn't been raised, he says our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Paul's not saying, well, if Christ hasn't been raised, I mean, he said some good things. You know, it might be somewhat valuable to try and imply them. I mean, you know, search for the American dream, and you get a little bit of what Jesus said, and, you know, love everybody. No, Paul's going, look, if that didn't happen, everything we're saying to you is useless. In fact, your faith is useless. The world says it's good to have faith. It's only good to have faith if the object of your faith is worthy of it. Faith in and of itself is neutral at best. In fact, it's misguided if the object of your faith isn't worthy. But faith in the resurrection. Paul's going, that's not useless. So he said, if Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching, our message, everything we've said is useless. Your faith is useless. And he says, more than that, we're false witnesses about God, for we've testified that Christ was raised from the dead. Paul's going, that would mean we're blasphemers. That would mean we're guilty of a, of a 
of a sin that the penalty for is death. So Paul's going, look, if, if the resurrection didn't take place, let's keep score here. Our preaching is youth, useless. Your faith is useless. We're guilty of blaspheming against God. We're false witnesses. We should be put to death. And he says this, if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile. It's worthless and you're still in your sin. See, the problem with all of us, every human being that ever lived, every human being that's ever been created in the image of God is that sin tarnished that. And without Christ, without the resurrection, there is no forgiveness of sin. Paul's saying, you can't be forgiven, you can't be made right, because God by his nature has to be just and holy and perfect. I mean, I could preach a whole sermon on that, but he has to be the ultimate of all those things, love. He has to be. That has to be his nature. And if sin has tarnished that nature in us, then something has to happen to make us reconciled. Because he wouldn't be just if he just said, you're forgiven and there's no penalty. So Jesus took the penalty for us to be made righteous. And he defeated sin and he defeated death when he was resurrected. And so Paul's going, look, not only is our preaching worthless, not only is your faith worthless, but you're still unforgiven. You're still in your sin. And then he says this, like if that wasn't all powerful enough, just in case you think you can take the resurrection, like that's an optional thing. Well, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't, doesn't really matter. Paul's going, it, ma- it makes all the difference in the world. And then Paul says this, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, of all people we are, be, uh, we are to be most pitied. Paul's going, if all you think Jesus can do for you and somehow make your experience on this life a little better or a little different, if the only hope you have of Christ is in this life, you'd be pitied. People should feel bad for you. That's what, that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, here's what happens if you take the resurrection out. We're false teachers. We have no hope. We're still in our sin. People should feel bad for us. But, verse 20, but Christ indeed has been raised from the dead and he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through one man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through one man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Paul's going, you're alive You have victory over sin and death. You begin to live incarnationally in Christ, allowing him to work through you. You are bringing the kingdom of heaven down on earth because of the victory of the resurrection. And so he closes verse 58 and he says this, therefore, or considering all that I've told you, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. He's going, look, I get it. I know it's tough. I know life's, life's difficult. I know you're facing some things. But stand firm. Don't move. Don't waver. This is the truth that changes everything. And he said, give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. 
Paul's going, look, what, you, what you're doing now, it's not just you're doing this here on earth and then someday you're beginning to live out those kingdom principles now. You are, in fact, enacting heaven on earth through allowing Christ to work through you. It's important because I think we miss this. We miss this, and so we figure we're tolerating this world and this life until that day comes. And Paul's saying, no, your eternity starts now. The resurrection was the beginning of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. It was, you know, we were just singing about how the veil's been torn, right? God has brought heaven and earth together. There's a sense of he's come, he's intervened, he sent his son to show us who God is. You want to know who God is, you look at Jesus Christ. That's a picture of who God is. And so the resurrection is central to the Christian faith. And I think too often we don't really understand what it means. We look at the cross and we understand what took place on the cross. And then we, we don't really apply the resurrection. We don't see that our hope, that our faith is tied to the cross. It's tied to the resurrection. It is the hope and power to overcome death. And so we are called to move from death to life here and now to no longer be slaves to sin and self and death. To no longer look for what is easy but what is right. To desire to do his will. See, probably one of my favorite themes to to preach about is this idea of of comfort versus growth, right? Because what people don't like more than anything is change. I mean, we just do not like change. I've seen it in an extreme example, but I see in, in, you know, in Teen Challenge, guys come in the program, and I've seen guys leave a 15-month program to do five years in jail because they know what jail's like, and they don't have to change. They can be the same. They can do five years and come out the same, but they don't want to have to change. They don't want to be confronted with themselves. They wanna, so they'd rather go with what, with what they're used to, what's comfortable, But the Christian life is John 3.30. It's more him, less me. And what that means is if you're like me, the least you are like Jesus, the more painful that process is. But that's the process. Lord, would you you make the fruit of the Spirit made manifest in my life? Would you help me to to clear the, the soil, to remove the garbage so that you could cause growth, so that you could cause maturity, so that you could do a work in me? Because I can't do it but he can do it. And so a lot of times we read scripture or we look at somebody's testimony and we think, well, look what God did in them. And then here's what happens, right? We look at our lives and oh, we read the scriptures and we want that. Yeah, you ever see somebody and they have some victory or God's working and, and you want that in your heart. You, Man, I, Lord, I wish you'd do that in my life. And then the enemy comes in right away and says, yeah, but he can't do that in your life. You're not worth that. No, but you're not like that person. No, but you have this problem. You have this past. And maybe somebody's told you that. And let me tell you right now that that's a lie from the enemy, that it's absolutely not true, and that the same power, that same resurrection power that rose Jesus from the dead, the same resurrection power that changed Paul's life and James' life and countless others in the Bible, that that's available to every one of us. We just have to surrender and give it up to him. It does not depend on how remarkable we are, thank God. It depends on how remarkable he is. And so I've said before, if we're comfortable, we're not growing. And if we're growing, we're not comfortable. And so we're here to grow. We gather together to become more like Jesus together. 
Go and make disciples, right? That's our, that's our mission statement. It's simple. To be and to make disciples. Not just to be disciples, but to be and make disciples. That this community should grow. Life on life discipleship. It's the core of who we are. And so we're a part of this kingdom. Our identity's changed and it's different. Things are different now. And, and this is, you know, Paul's, I mean, Paul just is a boss. Paul's, Romans 8, right? This is, this is where he goes. Romans 8, 16, he says this. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So Paul's going, look, this reality, this truth, it makes us heirs with Christ. It unites us with him. Our identities change. And then he says this. And you know what that does? That unites us with one another. We're not, we're adopted in. We have the, the word heirs. It's a legal term. In other words, you have the same rights as a son. Paul's going, you're now in the family of God. And then that's exciting. That's good news. And you're like, this is awesome. And then he, he seems to shift gears. And, and you kind of like, and then he says this. And if children are heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. Whoa. Well, Paul, I was liking the heirs thing. Liking the kingdom thing. What are we doing with the suffering, Paul? Couldn't you put that in the bottom? We're heirs with Christ. Our identity's changed. We got freedom from sin. We got eternal life, right? I mean, at least kind of, you know, ease into it. But Paul's going, no, Listen. If we suffer with him, we'll be glorified with him. And then in verse 18, he says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is revealed to us. Paul's going, yes, we're heirs with Christ. That means his kingdom that he's brought down. That means we're part of that kingdom too. But instead of talking about the benefits of being an heir, he talks about suffering and being glorified. Now, if I said to you at the beginning of the sermon, because you kind of have the answers to the test now, does anyone want to be part of a kingdom? I have the power to bring you into a kingdom. Everybody said, yeah, that's, you know, that's good. Because you understand correctly, to be part of a kingdom means to be part of what rules, to have power and wealth and authority and prestige. And who wouldn't want to be in that position? But this kingdom is different. And it is, in every way, imaginable, a better kingdom. It is every way imaginable, a more beautiful kingdom. And with this kingdom comes responsibility. Responsibility to leverage our time and our resources for not ourselves, but for our king. For the work of our king. So Paul talks about suffering with Christ before the glory. And I know the suffering part is tough, but life is difficult. And we don't understand it. And sometimes we think it's more than we can bear. We just want the glorification part. But there's something very true and very transformational and very powerful about suffering with Jesus about being changed by his presence. And I, and I don't know, I don't know if, if, the, if the truth of it, if you really dig deep, is because suffering tends to take us to a place where everything else, you know, where you just, you're focused, you're, nothing else matters. Everything's sort of stripped away. 
And you get to the place where you try this and you try that and you, you do this and you do that and you can't escape it and you can't understand it and there's no respite from it. And then in that place, Jesus says, I will meet you in it. See, we have a God who uniquely understands what it means to suffer. And the reality is that for most of you here, for myself, that the times when I felt closest to Jesus have been times of immense personal struggle and suffering. Where everything else seems to be stripped away. I didn't really matter what this person said or what I read. Or, you know, sometimes even you just try the, a prayer, you, try, you read the word, and sometimes you, you're just overwhelmed by his presence. And you just realize he's, that he's with you, that he's not going to leave you. And that, in fact, even in the midst of this difficulty, if you walk with him, You'll, you'll leave with, a, with an intimate, more, more deep understanding and love for who Jesus is. So Paul, Paul says, look, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, there's no comparison. There's, there's no comparison with the glory of being with Jesus. And we, you know, we talked about Paul, about how, you know, what happened in Paul's life. Paul was the cream of the crop, he was, he was in Ivy League, right? He was best pedigree, best experience, best, Paul's resume was bar none. There was nobody better than Paul. Paul could have, you know, Paul, you know, and we said it last week, Paul's like, you wanna brag? I'll brag some more. No matter how good you think you are, Paul's like, I'm better. And, and Paul was doing what he thought was his religious duty. He was a Pharisee. He was zealous. He persecuted Christians because they were, they, that, they were God's enemies, those Christians. Paul did everything he thought he was supposed to do. And something happened where Paul encountered Jesus and Paul was not a believer and Paul encountered the risen Jesus and he was so radically changed that he said, now all that, I throw it away. It's garbage. All I want is to be found in Jesus. All I want my life to do is bring glory to Jesus. I want to be all things to all people so that I can win some to Jesus. I don't care about anything yesterday. He wasn't condemned by his past. Paul had done some and been around some bad stuff. And Paul's like, I just want to bring glory to Jesus. Paul's life was radically changed. I was listening to... Francis Chan the other day. He was talking about that old kids game Simon Says, right? Simon says something, and then you do it. But he said that as Christians, Jesus says something, and we memorize it. Or we tell other people about it. We repeat it. We read books about how to do it. We tell other people, other people how to do it. And so often we just don't get around to doing it ourselves. Well, Jesus said this, and, and, and Francis Chan's like, you know, we should, we should get, a, get a, the Simon said version of Christianity. We gotta do it. Not just know it, but live it out. There's 500 people or so connected to this church, more or less, right? Now, what if just this week, everybody invited one person to come to church? It's one person. Not everybody, I mean, let's just say 10% of those, that's 50 people, and then next week you do it again. One week. Imagine what it would look like. Because we're, we're a healthy church. 
you know, we're doing well. But you know what? It's not just about us. Now, if you don't know anybody who doesn't know Jesus, then our work is done. We're good. But if you know at least one person that doesn't know Jesus, we have work to do. So making disciples isn't Pastor Jamie and Pastor Willie, Pastor Sam, Pastor Brian. Hey, I got a guy. I want you to make a disciple. Talk to him. No. Your testimony is not for you. God wants to use you and your life to bring him glory. And so you don't have to all, have all the answers. You only, you only need one answer. Jesus Christ. Jesus crucified, Jesus risen, and Jesus alive today. And that's the power to overcome everything. I want to read something to you. Tim Keller is talking here about the kingdom of God in this book. It's called uh, Shaped by the Gospel. And he says this, and I thought this was uh, worth reading. He's talking about the upside-down aspect of the gospel. He says, because Jesus was the king who became a servant, we see a reversal of values in his kingdom. In Jesus' kingdom, the poor and the sorrowful and the persecuted are above the rich and the recognized and the satisfied. The first shall be last. This reversal is a way of imitating the pattern of Jesus Christ's salvation. Though Jesus was rich, he became poor. Though he was a king, he served. Though he was the greatest, he made himself the servant of all. He triumphed over sin, not by taking power, but by serving sacrificially. He won through losing everything. There's a complete reversal of the world's way of thinking in which, which values power and recognition and wealth and status. The gospel then creates a new kind of servant community with people who live out an entirely alternate way of being human. Racial and class superiority, accrual of money and power at the expense of others, yearning for popularity and recognition are all marks of living in the world and they are the opposite of the gospel mindset. Keller's saying, look, this is an entirely new way to live. And Jesus Christ, that, that message of the cross, that message of the resurrection, that message that the world thinks it's foolishness, that's that power to live incarnationally as an entirely new way of people. Not just a way, but the way and truth and life. The Bible teaches that the gospel creates an entirely new way to be, and this affects everything in us. It is a power. Romans 1, 16 through 17, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteous shall live by faith. It's a power that creates and sustains a new life in us, so in Colossians 1.5, he says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard, and the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also, is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. This gospel, this kingdom living, it's begun in you. And it's working through you. And it'll continue until he comes. But it begins now. You don't wait for some future date. You don't celebrate just the eternal life we have with Christ. But the new life we have in Christ right now. Available to us today. Available to you today. 
If you're here, you're not beyond God's grace and mercy. It doesn't matter what your yesterday looked like. It doesn't matter what your this morning looked like. When the enemy tells you, oh, you know, that person's life, or that person in the Bible, that's not available to me. It's a lie. It's not true. It is. I've said before, it's never your past, only your pride that gets in the way of what God wants to do in your life. It is never your past, only your pride. As we seem to seek oftentimes not to serve God and people like Jesus did, like he taught and commanded us to do, but we serve ourselves. And so when difficulty comes, instead of suffering with God, instead of serving God, we bail. We make excuses because here's the sense, right? There's this idea of, you know, maybe you've been coming to church and, and, uh, and you believe, you know, the truth of who Jesus is and, and, you know, you're getting to that place where, you know, this is the week I'm going to give a little more or this is the week I'm going to sign up for a community group or this is the week I'm going to start serving in the nursery, whatever it is, right? And so the idea is that, you know, that you're, you're moving toward a more engaged, involved, in, and so once you do those things, it's going to work out. Because, you know, when you serve God and when you, you know, give yourself to him, it always goes well. Everyone's like, is that a trick question? It doesn't, right? We read the Bible. Jesus got the cross for his ministry. Most of his disciples were killed for theirs. Yet we think we get a crown and we get accolades and everyone's going to love us and life's going to go easy. And that's not what happens. And that's why Paul's going, yes, you're heirs with Christ. Yes, your identity's changed. But the whole world system is against you. Human beings, by nature, we want to be accepted. We're, we're community creatures. We're, you know, we want to be, nobody wants to be isolated. Nobody wants to be an outcast. And to be a Christian, in some sense, means a little isolation. It means there are people who will reject you. That's the reality of it. The seas aren't going to be parted for you when you seek to do the right thing. Acts 4 is a perfect example. Peter and John are arrested. It says, as they were speaking to the people. So Peter and John are ministering, and they're healing, and they're telling people about Jesus. They're doing what they're supposed to do. And here's what happens. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, and being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection from the dead... Every sermon in the book of Acts points to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every single time they preach, that's the message they preach. Jesus was resurrected. Acts is the blueprint of the church. It is, this is how you do church. And every single sermon was about Jesus is alive. He was resurrected. And so they're preaching that. And verse 3 says, they laid hands on people. And uh, I'm sorry. The guards came, laid hands on them, and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. So for being obedient, for serving in the church, for doing what they were supposed to do, what they were called to do, they were put in jail. Now, I don't know about you, but I I, I think a lot of us would have been like, I'm done, that's it. I mean, I tried. You You saw me, Lord, I tried. I mean, see, things are so much better when I just listen to sermons. But now, you know, I went, I tried, I served, I was telling these people about Jesus, and they put me in jail. I'm done. But see, these men were different. There was something in them that had radically changed. They weren't always this brave, right? Peter denied Jesus. So if you're here this morning, remember your past doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you denied Jesus. 
doesn't matter if you persecuted Christians, if you somebody made fun of Christians. I don't care how you may have denied Christ. I don't care where you are in your walk. I care how you're going to move forward. Because here's the thing. If we want to see people saved and set free and flourishing in new life, if we want more brothers and sisters and heirs, then we're going to have to partner with one another. We're going to have to come together. That scripture in Philippians 1 through 6, where it says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on till completion in the day of Christ Jesus. We, we, we read that, we put on bumper stickers, we stand on that scripture, but let's back up. And all my prayers for all of you, Paul says, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then he says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on till completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's talking to a group of people. So yes, it applies to some sense to us as individuals, but Paul's going, look, all of you together. God's working in you, and God's working in through you. Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And we're saying here, partner with us as we contend for the gospel in the city. I have ducks. What a transition, huh? Where's he going with this? I have ducks. My ducks are entertaining. If you've been over, you see my ducks, they come up to you and they welcome you. My wife paddleboards, the ducks paddleboard with my wife. They make all kind of noise, they give us eggs. They're, they're good. We love the ducks. We, we like what we get from the ducks. But ducks poop. We don't like the duck poop. We want the ducks, we don't want the duck poop. We're called to be shepherds, but sheep stink. Sheep poop. Sheep are annoying. Sheep take our time and our resources. It's not easy to be a shepherd. I said before, and it's a beautiful illustration of Martin Luther King when he said, you know, the, the difference between the Samaritan and the priest and the Levite to the priest and the Levite, when they saw the man who had been beaten and robbed, said, I don't know, you know, if I stop to help him, it's going to cost me some money. What if people see, I mean, my reputation and, you know, I got somewhere to be and I don't know. I think maybe I'm going to, because the question was, how is it going to affect me? What's it going to do to me and my schedule and my plans? And the Samaritan reversed that and said, if I don't stop and help, what's going to happen to him? Because it's tough to be a shepherd. It's tough to tend to sheep who keep doing the same thing. It's like, you know, that video we played of the, the sheep stuck in the ditch and they spend all this time and they pull them out and two seconds later he jumps right back in the ditch. That's like ministry. That's our own lives. That's what we do. How many times, you know, we look at that and be like, yeah, that's ministry. I try to help everybody. And God's like, no, that's you, you idiot. You're the sheep. Amen? Amen? It is messy. Life and ministry are messy, but it's beautiful. Paul's going, it doesn't compare. You build your own kingdom. I don't care how beautiful you think it is. I don't care at the end how much, you know, accolades. It's nothing. It doesn't even compare to working eternal things here and now. Not just for then, but for here and now. For having Christ work in you and through you here and now. So we go back to our friends, Peter and John, and you think at the very least they get out of jail and be like, all right, 
Let's go back. Let's, let's go back to the conference room. Let's pull out the whiteboard. Let's come out with maybe a different plan, maybe a different presentation. Maybe we take a different path. I don't know. We got to do something different. All right, let's at least go home and, and rest. You know, it's like, all right, guys, you know, we're going to let you out. Stop preaching this message. Wasn't an option. Wasn't an option. And in Acts 4, verse 4, it says, Many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty good response. See, they, they didn't care what happened to them. They cared about what happened to the people around them. And that's what being a Christian is. It's recognizing that what Jesus did and is doing in me and through me is for me only insofar as it affects how I engage and relate to everybody else. Later on in verse 13, Acts 4, 13, now as they observed the confidence in Peter and John and understood they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. See, in a worldly kingdom, it's about being trained and educated and what skills and what knowledge you have. But in Jesus' kingdom, it's about being recognized there was something different about them because they had spent time with Jesus. What better testimony is there? I mean, I think on my tombstone, I just wanted to say, Brian had been with Jesus. See, the change all comes from Christ. What made the difference is that these men were with Jesus and they were sent with the Holy Spirit and that presence amazed even the religious superstars of the day. Keller says, religion is outside in and the gospel is inside out. Everything in Jesus' kingdom is flipped upside down. And for many of us, we think it's just about knowing the right stuff, but it's about knowing the right stuff so we can be transformed, so we live as redeemed. And so if you hear about other people living for Jesus and you feel like, I'm just not really, then pray. Then ask God to show you, Lord, what, what is it I'm holding on to? I mean, we're not here just to, to hear a message and, and to have it change the way we think. We're here to receive, to, to be in the presence of God and have him change the way we live. And so it begins with us saying, Lord, search my heart. Bring to my attention those things that need changing, God. Allow, we allow you full access, God. Not you can work here, but don't work there, or no. God just wants people who say, here I am, Lord, use me. Have your way in my life. And I promise you, you'll be amazed with what he does. It doesn't compare to the best that we can do. See, C.S. Lewis said, as human beings, we long for happiness, yet too often we believe the lies that lead to evil actions. So we have this idea that there's things we want and then there's things God wants and so Christianity is not doing the things we want and instead doing the things he wants. And, and C.S. Lewis is like, no, God wants for you those ultimate things. Your desires are from him. So what Lewis is saying is, you just don't know the way to lasting joy. You don't know the way to lasting pleasure and peace. So it's, a, it's essentially what Paul says in Galatians. It, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. C.S. Lewis is going, the very thing you long for, 
everything that you crave, everything you want in your heart of hearts, God wants that for you. He's not against you. It's just you don't know the way to get there. And you keep going the wrong way and doing the wrong things and thinking that's going to do it. And it doesn't. Because there is no satisfaction apart from Christ. But there is full satisfaction in Christ. And so Lewis is saying, stop running away from God. He has the very thing you're searching for. Just give up your pride. I've said before, the greatest lie of the enemy is that we can say we love Jesus and still live for self and be satisfied and happy, and we cannot. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And few find it. He's talking in a literal, in a figurative. He's saying life, existence, meaning, value, purpose. What it means to be alive. Everything that you want. It's found in this upside down kingdom, in this die to self to live for him. You see, he's not just talking about salvation. He's talking about the entire Christian life. Why don't we stand as we get ready to close? A great friend of mine sent me a card once when I started in ministry, Jackie Stradoff. And she shared with me these beautiful words of encouragement. And she said, don't stop preaching the gospel. And she said, keep loving people back to life. See, each one of us, we are called and that we are empowered by the God of the universe who loved us back to life to share that love with the world, to love others back to life. That's why when people are baptized, we put that on a t-shirt, loved back to life. So Father, have your way this morning with your people, in your people, through your people. Father, as the altars are open, God, help us to come to you surrendered. Help us to come to you willing to give up whatever it is you want to take from us so you can replace it with something better, God. The cry of our heart, the prayers that you would use us, that our lives would bring you glory, God. Have your way in this church. Father, we, we are grateful for the power, for your power that raised Jesus from the dead and for that same power that enables us to live for him, to live with him, to live through him. We thank you that you've brought the kingdom of heaven down here in part. And you want to use us to build your church. In Jesus' name we pray.